My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Uh, added to the reasons that the Fed probably can't fix this is our knowledge now, based on recent experience, um, that when money gets too easy, prices start to rise in a really debilitating way. So we know that can happen. We have very recent memory of it happening. And we're going to be suspicious of, um, you know, the next bout of 30% money supply growth or the next round of negative interest rates. We're not going to trust those things the way we trusted them the first time because we didn't know what they would do before. And then we found out what they would do. So the Fed has lost a lot of its most aggressive, effective tools because they overuse them and now nobody uh, respects or trusts them. So I, I don't think there's any way to avoid something happening to get rid of a lot of these imbalances because, you know, when debt builds up beyond a certain point, you have to wipe it out one way or the other. You either inflate it away or you uh, get rid of it via default and mass bankruptcy. On this episode of the What the Finance podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming back John Rubino, uh, who's on the podcast for the third time. So, John, thanks so much for coming back again. Thanks, Anthony. Good to be back. Yeah, I look forward to speaking. You know, I think you really resonate or your opinions really resonate with, uh, with with a lot of the viewers and they sort of agree with what you're saying. And it's been a really interesting period. I know the last few times we've had you on, you sort of saying that things aren't good, there could be a recession and the economy seems to have been plodding along, markets have gone up. So I, I guess maybe from your perspective, what are you currently seeing in the economy and in markets overall? Well, I think that there are a lot of reasons to expect a big slowdown, maybe a recession and probably an equities bear market in 2024. But I think the question is, why hasn't it happened yet? You know, because a lot of this stuff that's um, that's out there as uh, red flags has been there for a while. You know, consumer spending should tank with all the consumer debt that we've taken on uh, things like that. Those things have been there for a while and yet they haven't blown anything up. And we're still kind of sort of growing in the US at least. Uh, you, big parts of Europe are flat to negative right now, but the US still has positive top line numbers in most of the economic reports. And I think there are two reasons why we haven't dropped into a recession yet. And one is fiscal stimulus. The US government is running insane levels of deficits right now, crisis levels of deficits. We might take on $2 trillion of new debt this year, which is you know, I, I am old enough to remember before we had even $1 trillion of total debt, you know, and now we're taking on twice that in a year. Um, so that's stimulative when the government borrows huge amounts of money and spends it. Um, although in, in this case, a big part of the deficit is um, interest. And that's that's a whole separate story that we should talk about in a minute. But um, now I'll just, uh, oh, oh, and the other thing, that is um, supporting the global economy as a kind of a wild card. It's the AI-driven um, microchip boom that's going on out there. You know, a, a generative AI is a fairly new thing. It's just in the last couple of years, it's become a, a hot topic. And the companies that make the chips that run AI systems now are few and very specialized. So NVIDIA and a handful of others are seeing massive sales. And um, which is, by the way, um, 
you know, uh, unfortunate. Well, actually, it's a good thing. I tried to short NVIDIA because it looked wildly overvalued about six months ago. And um, it turns out you it's very hard to short something like NVIDIA because of the option premiums, which um, that's maybe a technical term for some of your viewers. But basically, it means it's super expensive to bet against a stock like NVIDIA. So I didn't short it, which is a good thing because it's up another 100 points. Um, it's not it's a trillion dollar company. And uh there, there's really no end in sight to the sales boom for those guys. Anyhow, that's supporting the global economy as well. Uh, going forward, I think there are still a lot of things that uh, that point to a downturn. And uh, one of the big ones now is layoffs. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing headlines about big companies announcing big layoffs out there, and it's accelerating. Citigroup just announced 20,000 um, people being fired here pretty soon. And um, among the uh, the big tech stocks in Silicon Valley, um, you're seeing regular 10,000 layoff announcements for most of them. So um, it, it could be that um, the labor market, which has been pretty tight for the last couple of years, is going to loosen up dramatically pretty soon here with a lot of people laying off, being laid off. And the way that works is the people who get fired tend to spend way less after they get fired, which causes other people to be laid off and so on until you get this snowball effect that um, puts the economy into recession. So I still think that's a thing and I think it's going to happen pretty soon. Um, and meanwhile, the manufacturing indexes that the Fed reports every once in a while have gone into contraction in the U.S. So our manufacturing sector is shrinking. Um California has a sudden $68 billion budget deficit, which means they're going to have to cut a lot of services, which in the, uh, the biggest state, it's maybe what the fifth biggest economy in the world, if it was a country. Um, so they're looking at a serious recession in the year ahead. And then the, um, the Fed has partially walked back their, um, their, oh, we're going to cut interest rates in the short term guidance. So it could be that interest rates will stay where they are or go up a little bit, which is also um, a recessionary indicator. So you add all that up, and I still think 2024 is a recession year, but it hasn't happened as soon as it probably should have otherwise. Yeah, lots of interesting points there. Um, maybe one thing is, is it going to be that bad news is actually good news for the markets? Because I think if we you know, in the UK today, today's uh, Friday the 19th uh, of January, this video is going to be released in a week. We actually had a really poor um, sales uh, sort of estimates coming in or sales data. So I think they, it was 2% uh, below previous uh, December and they expected like a 1% increase, but it actually meant the stock market went up because <laughs> everyone's like, oh, the central bank is going to pivot. So do you think there's the potential for that? So it, once we start getting maybe this, recessionary data coming through, it's actually going to be potentially beneficial for the stock market? Well, here, here's how that works. When people expect the Fed to start cutting, then you get a relief rally because everybody says, oh, it's easy money. It, normality is returning. We can buy stocks, you know, and, and no, we've got the Fed at our back. Um, but just because the Fed or any central bank um, implies that it's done tightening and starts talking about easing, um, that doesn't usually actually fix anything in the real economy. So you get this relief rally, and then people start to realize, oh, you know, the, the economy is actually getting worse. And, uh, you know, that, that's when the Fed starts um, cutting, usually is when, they, um, when they're worried about what's happening. 
And uh, so maybe the Fed cuts once or twice. But historically, um, the stock market loses um, the most that it loses during its uh, recession-driven bear market when the Fed is already cutting interest rates. So the stock market tanks after the Fed starts cutting because that's a signal that the economy is in bad enough shape to warrant lower interest rates. And that means lower corporate profits, which means lower stock prices. So we haven't had any of that yet. We've just got the relief rally going on right now. But um, assuming it plays out the way it normally does, the economy will start to slow down. Um, The Fed will start to cut. And then the financial markets will kind of panic because they see the Fed is cutting with reason, you know, that the economy is slowing down and that we're heading for some kind of a crisis. So that's all still to come. And uh, Europe might be a little further along than the U.S. is in that process because Germany was already technically in a recession for the past six months. So we've seen um, a slowing economy in Europe where we haven't seen that yet in the U.S. But, you know, eventually everybody gets synchronized. When the U.S. tanks, the rest of the world isn't immune to it and uh, everybody drops into a recession. So uh, that could be the story of 2024. Um, although, like, like we talked about, the U.S. government is leaning aggressively against that scenario by borrowing insane amounts of money. Uh, so we'll have to see how it all plays out. But I, I kind of tend to think that, uh, you know, a, a shrinking um, labor force as there are layoffs and um, shrinking manufacturing base, those are the kind of things that usually lead to a recession. So I think we're close to being being there. And by mid-year... We'll find out if that's a, a valid thesis or not. Yeah, it seems a little bit like deja vu. I think it was the end of 2022 where we, we were experiencing a very similar phenomenon where you know data was looking negative. I think uh, these companies started laying off people. Markets went down sort of 20% or so. Uh, and then everyone thought that that was going to continue in 2023. And then I, I don't know if it was AI or something else. There was just this massive shift. <laughs> and it seems like the market sort of came alive again and uh, all these companies stopped laying off. So do you think, yeah, now is just the time where it's they've held on for as long as they can and there's sort of not much more they can do? Well, I, I think so. There's just so many areas of weakness out there right now because uh, consumers are tapped out and credit card debt is at record levels and personal interest, which is the interest that people rather than governments pay on their debts, um, is going straight up. You know, when you get these parabolic increases in scary numbers, that's usually a sign that the trend has continued as far as it can continue, you know. And in terms of government debt, we are now going parabolic. And now in the interest costs for individuals on their debt, we're going parabolic. And th- this feels like, you know, I don't I don't want to go way out on a limb here and because um, I'm already a perma bear, you know, but um, this feels like the blow off stage of a credit super cycle when a lot of these big numbers, um, which have been going up and up and up for decades, all of a sudden start going straight up. Because how much longer can um, U.S. government debt go up at $2 trillion a year when that raises interest costs, which raises government spending, which raises government borrowing even further and so on? You know, you get kind of a death spiral when the numbers look like this and continue. So I, I think something happens to break this. And there are lots of potential catalysts. But I don't know what it's going to be. Oh, and we haven't mentioned commercial real estate yet in the U.S. Office buildings are tanking in value. And since 
local and regional banks own a ton of that paper, our banking sector is going to have to start reporting big losses on their office buildings and apartment houses and other kinds of commercial real estate, which might give us a, um, a banking crisis. So wherever you look, there are catalysts for the next recession, and we just don't know which will be the first to blow up. But I think I don't think you can have this many catalysts waiting to happen and, and have none of them happen. That would be a, an extreme surprise. Um, and that might have to involve, you know, aliens landing on the White House lawn and giving us unlimited energy technology or something like that. You know, it's hard to see how a normal functioning economy with this level of technology can have all these problems and not suffer in some serious way from them. Yeah, it's a good point. So then you're saying that you think in the coming months that we will see a recession and even though the Fed pivots, they're not going to be able to save, I guess, uh, the economy, do you think it's sort of gotten to the point where it has to go through a full-on unwinding of the last 40 years Forty years of exuberance? Yeah, that, that's why we have the business cycle. Um, and the Fed never prevents a recession from happening after a certain amount of debt has built up across a, a culture. So there's no reason to think that the Fed is going to, you know, um, perform this miracle of a soft landing after a long expansion where we go back to organic growth, where consumers are back to borrowing again and putting their lives on their credit cards and buying big cars and buying big houses. that None of that can happen with the price of houses where they are and cars where they are and consumer debt where it is. You know, those, those are imbalances that have to be worked off. And there isn't really anything the Fed can do to fix that. And by the way, we found out what happens when the Fed, the Fed aggressively eases with this much debt out there. That was 2022. We had double-digit inflation in the U.S. So uh, added to the reasons that the Fed probably can't fix this is our knowledge now, based on recent experience, um, that when money gets too easy, prices start to rise in a really debilitating way. So we know that can happen. We have very recent memory of it happening. And we're going to be suspicious of, um, you know, the next bout of 30% money supply growth or the next round of negative interest rates. We're not going to trust those things the way we trusted them the first time because we didn't know what they would do before. And then we found out what they would do. So the Fed has lost a lot of its most aggressive, effective tools because they overuse them and now nobody uh, respects or trusts them. So I, I don't think there's any way to avoid something happening to get rid of a lot of these imbalances because, you know, when debt builds up beyond a certain point, you have to wipe it out one way or the other. You either inflate it away or you uh, get rid of it via default and mass bankruptcy. And that's kind of where we are. So um, either choice is um, very scary and very tumultuous for the economy. So we'll, we'll have to see what they choose, but um you know, in the long run, it almost doesn't matter. We're pretty close to the end of the whole fiat currency experiment. And, uh, you know, mistakes will be made from here to the actual end of the fiat currency experiment. But we don't know what kind of mistakes. We just know that uh, they'll contribute to the process of this whole thing ending and having to be replaced by something else. Yeah. So when you say mass bankruptcies, is that uh, company specifically? Is that governments as well, do you think? Uh, who would be the people to yeah, be affected by that? Well, in, in the past, it's been companies and individuals. In other words, the um, 
the 1930s Great Depression scenario was the private sector just completely lost it. So, you know, businesses failed, banks failed, people lost their houses, and all of the debt that was associated with these things was wiped out via default. Um, now, the, um, the Fed would like to avoid that, or all the central banks would like to avoid that, because um, that's an immediate crisis, and the guys in charge get blamed for it when it happens. So they... Um, in the last few cycles have aggressively tried to inflate their way out of what would have otherwise been a 1930s-style deflationary crash. And, uh, you know, they've kind of sort of succeeded in the sense that we're not in a, another Great Depression, but they've done that at the cost of massive increases in debt, which is now turning into massive increases in interest expense. So it's not clear that they can inflate their way out of this next one um, but it's fairly safe to say that they'll try, you know? So we're going to do that experiment where, uh, where you take this amount of debt that has never been seen before in human history and you say, all right, we're going to try to grow the economy by um, making this debt massively easier to pay off by inflating away the currency. And we're going to see what happens, you know? And I, I kind of tend to think that uh, that we'll get um, what this, the Austrian School of Economics calls the crack-up boom which is um, a point at which a critical mass of people figure out that the government intends to basically inflate away the currency forever. And so they bail on the currency. So it's not, you know, a, a supply of the currency driven crisis. It's a lack of confidence or a disappearance of confidence in the currency crisis. And um, what happens then is everybody just takes their paychecks and they buy real stuff. Um, that governments can inflate away, and that pushes up the price of those things, which manifests as inflation, and things spin out of control. So um, in the past, many, many countries have gone through something like this, uh, where they they screwed up their currency, they tried to inflate away their debt, and uh, and everything just blew up on them. But in the past, it happened in a in the context of a sound money world. Everybody else was on the gold standard. So this one country, you know, Weimar Germany, let's say, um, inflated away their currency, but then they just went back on the gold standard and normal life resumed. Um, nobody's on the gold standard anymore. Everybody's got a fiat currency. So the, the thing that's coming might be global, where um, Europe, big chunks of Asia, and uh, most of North America have some kind of a currency crisis simultaneously. And that's that's uncharted territory. You know, We don't know how that, that's going to go. But it's safe to say that it'll be pretty chaotic, right? Because there's nobody left to bail out the countries whose currencies blow up. And uh, eventually we get the Jim Rickards um, currency reset where we go back to some kind of gold standard or, or something comparable. But in the meantime, chaos, you know, and that's, uh, that's what's coming. Although the timing is getting, is, is very hard to predict because uh, so many tricks are being played by the world's central banks. Um, and a lot of those tricks have succeeded in kicking the can down the road, but um, eventually you reach the point where the tricks don't work anymore. So the only real question is, is that 2024 or is it 2028 or 2030? And um, I don't know. I, I uh, don't have a good record for short-term timing calls, but uh, I, I think the long-term trends are basically fixed in place. And, uh, and uh, you know, as an individual, our challenge is to is positioning ourselves so that we are at least protected and maybe benefit from these big changes that are almost certain to happen eventually. 
Yeah, great point. So if we go to, you were talking there about how sort of the inflation COVID was sort of influenced by uh, the Fed. A lot of people are saying it was more fiscally driven rather than uh, monetarily driven by the, by the Fed as well as sort of supply chain shock. So do you not agree with that or do you think it's maybe a combination of both? Oh, it was definitely both during the, the pandemic because we had negative interest rates around the world, which is about as aggressive as monetary policy can possibly get, right? And uh, and we had aggressive QE um, that raised the um, the global money supply dramatically. I mean, more in two years than it's ever been raised. And we had governments running massive deficits and spending that money on stuff. In the U.S., we we started a big infrastructure plan and. And we basically just handed out free money to lots of people and we bailed out uh, big sections of the economy. So we did everything, you know, we, we took that pandemic so much more seriously than we should have. Um, but on, on the bright side, it gave us a lot of information about what the boundaries are for monetary and fiscal policy. We found out what we can't do. We cannot do what we, we did in uh, 20 and 21 because then we get 2022, right? And we don't want that again because double-digit inflation is a um, civilization-ending problem in this kind of a world with this much debt out there. So we we don't want to go back to double-digit inflation, but um, we don't have any real tools that that fix things otherwise. So yeah, I think that uh, our mistakes were both monetary and fiscal. And now monetary policy is no longer what you would call a, a mistake to the easy side. Um, in fact, it's, it's pretty tight given the amount of debt that's out there. Um, but the fiscal side of um, government policy is still aggressively easy and uh, maybe historically so. You know, we haven't taken on this kind of debt in such a short time in the past very many times, just a, a handful of um, years during the Great Recession and um, maybe one year during the pandemic. Um, and now all well, of that's over. You know, we're not in a recession. We're not in a pandemic. And yet we're still borrowing money as if it's this gigantic existential crisis. So we'll see how it goes. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think governments will obviously try both monetary and fiscal policy when the time comes. Um, and it's up to the markets to judge that. You know, are we going to react with short-term hindsight and say, well, that didn't work. So let's assume this won't work. I think that'd be the right way to judge it. But, um, you know, hope springs eternal. And it's possible that um, the financial markets are fooled again by all that easy money. But um, I tend to think not. I tend to think this time around, you know, we've been educated by the recent past and we're not going to be fooled that easily. Yeah, you you definitely hope so. So you you mentioned that the Fed have sort of... uh pivoted where and then a lot of people would maybe say that they're still at sort of record highs in the, in the near term at least for uh for interest rates is this more just the fact that they haven't continued to increase interest rates are you seeing as well maybe the uh, rhetoric that's actually coming out of the fed the same they're potentially looking at cutting uh why do you think they've pivoted already well the, the first stage is the pause when they stop raising interest rates um and you know, they did that for several reasons, I think. One is that uh, they can read a chart just as easily as you and I can. And when the government's interest cost go- starts going straight up, um, that's death spiral territory there. You know, you, you enter a period in which interest costs have to be borrowed, which makes interest costs go up the next year and so on um, into a, um, a cycle that you can't control. So they saw that happening. 
Um, and they recognize that the government's interest cost in the not too distant future, if it keeps going um, at this trajectory, will exceed income tax revenues. And that's one of those bankruptcy signals for a government. You know, when uh, when you are just borrowing money um, to basically pay the interest on your debt, which is what is happening in that kind of a situation. Um, you know, financially, there's nothing left for you to do. You know, you're a, a bankrupt entity. Um, and the other thing that they looked at probably was personal interest costs, because that's also spiking and that affects consumer spending and slows down the economy in the future. In other words, if your personal interest expense is going through the roof, you're not going to go take a nice vacation or buy a big car. You just can't do it because you're, once again, you're, you're borrowing money in order to cover your interest. And that's a recipe for bankruptcy. Um, maybe the biggest of them all is that, it, though, that, is that it's an election year. Um, the incumbent party does not want monetary policy to be tightening right up to the election because they know they'll get voted out of office. So, I, and I think the Fed understands this. If they want continued work in the financial establishment, then they've got to do what they can to get the incumbents reelected this year in the U.S. And, and that means stopping the interest rate increases now and cutting them sooner rather than later. So if they're a politically driven Fed, we're going to find out soon because they got to start cutting right away because there's a lag between changes in monetary policy and effects on the economy. And it might already be too late to avoid a recession coinciding with an election. But, you know, if they're good little bureaucrats, they got to try, right? So if, if interest rates get cut at the next Fed meeting, you know that they got a phone call from the White House and they're doing what they're told. And if interest rates um, don't get cut and, uh, you know, if they go up, which would be um, a, an amazing outcome, uh, then, you know, they're looking at inflation numbers and um, they definitely, you know, positively don't want to return to 2022 so they're going to keep things a little tighter, maybe longer than would be politically wise in order to head off a resurgence of inflation. And that would be the statesman-like approach, you know, the Paul Volcker approach, where you don't care about the economy, you do what's right for the stability of the dollar. I don't know if our guys this time around have that kind of um, dedication to what's true rather than their careers. So we'll see. But, you know, they're going to tell us very soon what they are and how they view the world. Uh, I think it'll happen at the next Fed meeting. Yeah, and if you, I guess if you look at uh, sort of Trump and how he uh, acted towards the Fed, it probably wasn't. It, it's from what I remember, it was quite hostile. So from their perspective, they're maybe thinking, "Oh, we need to do what we can to prevent that from occurring again." Well, yeah, you know, they either way, they might be thinking that, well, if we cut interest rates aggressively, we help the incumbents, of course. But if they still get voted out. At least Trump, when he comes in, can say, all right, you you know, you tried, you cut interest rates. Now cut them some more. I want negative interest rates. But at least they'll still have their jobs. And, and yeah, you know, we Trump did a lot of things right in his four years. He was probably a better president than Biden, but he also did a lot of things wrong. And one of the things he did wrong was he, he badgered the Fed. <laughs> He, he, he used to say at, in pref, press conferences, and I'm sure in private when he talked to Jerome Powell, hey, um, Germany has negative interest rates. Why don't we have negative interest rates? It's making it hard on our, our, com our companies 
that we have these high interest rates compared to Germany. Why can't I have the same rates as Germany? So he, he doesn't really understand monetary policy. He, he understands how business works and, and he's a real estate guy, which means he loves low interest rates. So there's no, um, no question that were he to replace Biden, there would be even more pressure on the Fed to cut interest rates. So I, I you know, wouldn't be a surprise if we're back in negative territory in, in many places, not just the U.S., um, in, you know, a year from now. And again, don't, you know, I'm terrible at short-term uh, prognostication. But I, I think given the dynamics out there, uh, you know, the, the high likelihood of a recession in the year ahead, um, the, the real possibility that the next guy who takes over is actually more in favor of negative interest rates than the guy who would be replacing. You know, you put those things together and um, you get very aggressively easy monetary policy at some point in the future. So I think that's completely possible. And um, I think it's possible within a year. So we'll see, you know, have me back in a year and, and we'll see if that's the way it turns out. But I, I think that could be a dynamic that we see. Uh, and it could be very sudden when it happens because uh, it's not that far from the election. And if the Fed is going to pivot, they need to do it soon. Yeah, and I think no matter who gets into uh, the White House, it's going to continue to be extremely large deficits for for the foreseeable future, which uh, sort of plays into what you're talking about. Well, well, you know, the deficit thing might just be unavoidable at this point because remember, we were always going to have a big structural deficit because of demographics. The baby boomers were going to start retiring and they were going to need Social Security and Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the government was going to have to spend a lot more now than it did 20 years ago. And everybody saw that coming. We all knew it. So, you know, in a well-run country, we would have been running massive surpluses up until like three years ago so that we were ready for the massive increase in government spending um, that the baby boomers would cause. Well, that didn't happen. So now we're already running um, emergency level deficits as the second half of the baby boomers start to retire. So in another five years, we'll all be retired. We'll all be um, drawing massive um, benefits from the government that the government will have to borrow to cover. So I think we blew it from a timing standpoint if we were ever going to get government finances under control. And so even if, you know, even if we were running, you know, zero deficits right now, we would still have the boomers to deal with five years hence, and we would still be back in very deep deficit territory structurally. In other words, unless you cut spending really dramatically, that's going to be your deficit. Uh, and there's no political will to cut spending. Uh, and I don't think there's any will to have your spending cut um, on the part of the voting populace. So if a government tries austerity, they get kicked out of office in any event. So, you know, I think it's just inevitable. We have this institutional momentum that is taking us to a point where our finances are absolutely unmanageable. And you can make the case that we're there already, but even if we're not there already, um, demographics will take us there in a very short period of time. And we'll be talking national bankruptcy at that point. Do you think it's possible to find a way to pay for all these obligations that the US and other countries have without, I guess, drastically uh, inflating their currency? 
No, no. Because to do it, I mean, you would have to cut the um, the average lifestyle of the average American um, by a third. In other words, you get one third poorer in order for the government to um, um, to finance its deficits, you know, pay off its deficits so it's not borrowing more money every year. And how many voters would put up with having their lifestyles reduced by a third? Because we have to remember, this has all happened in the context of something else that makes uh, a political fix impossible. Um, government policy over the last 30 years has been geared towards enriching the already rich um, at the... Um, at the expense of everybody else. So we've got a, you know, maybe 50% of the population in the US just getting by. You know, they've been um, they've been impoverished by globalization, by extremely low interest rates, by the forever wars and by the pand- pandemic we just had. Put all those things together and they they made the rich much richer and everybody else a lot less rich. So now you can't have the government stand up and say, hey, uh, because of this thing that's beyond our control, now we have to take one third more from you. Because, you know, in the US, we've already got this huge group of people that um, before the pandemic, before the inflation, were just getting by. You know, they could cover their costs, but just barely. And now the cost of living living is up by 30%. So they, um, you know, they got to figure out how to, um, how to live their lives when they can't put food on the table, put gas in the car and pay the rent all at the same time. So there's no way you go to those people and say, it's time for austerity. So basically you would get a revolution if they tried that. So there's no political fix to our financial problems. And that's uh, that's a very big deal in, in part because it's just demonstrably true. And in part because of what happens when people figure it out, you know, when the, the consensus becomes oh, yeah, our problems are completely unfixable. There's nothing we can do about this. Then you get people acting accordingly for that circumstance, which is to say, you know, panicking in a lot of ways financially. And the, um, the hoarding during the pandemic was a, lo- a tiny little glimpse of what will come if everybody realizes that the government has no choice but to raise taxes massively or, or uh, you know, in- cut interest rates to negative levels again or you know or increase the deficit to 3 trillion dollars from 1.5 trillion dollars today um you know when those things start happening people will correctly interpret that as basically the end of this system and so we'll all become hoarders <laughs> hoarders and preppers you know the whole US i i don't know how that would work in the UK because, um, first of all, you know, you, you don't have the Second Amendment. We're all well-armed, which means uh, we're a little bit cockier about the whole, oh, leave me alone and go away to the government kind of thing. But I think in the U.S., you would you would see a huge increase in the uh, prepper, survivalist, um, certainly populist attitude out there. And so we would start, first of all, electing people like Donald Trump, but maybe even more extreme. Um, and um, we'd start buying things that governments can't inflate away. And like I said, in, in the crack-up boom, that's very inflationary. So the the change in attitude would create a self-fulfilling prophecy. When we stop trusting the government, we bring about the inflation that we're afraid the government's going to create, but we do it in a, in a more compressed time frame. So things get very unstable. But yeah, that's... <laughs> 
that's kind of what's coming. And um, I, I don't think there's a fix. I can't imagine how we get out of this without some kind of extreme pain being visited on some big group of the economy and then them reacting um, the way people who, you know, who are feeling pain react. So I just think that's our few years ahead. And, um, you know, as individuals and as investors, there are strategies that um, that can either protect you or make you a ton of money if you get it right. And that's, uh, see, that's how I get up in the morning without being depressed is uh, I, I think, okay, the uh, this bad stuff is coming. But how is it going to make me rich, you know? And then I, I start um, thinking about new ways to um, to invest, to be prepared for all this crazy stuff that's on the way. Yeah, as you said, it's trying to look at those positives and, and it's all about preparation and seeing what you can do to um, prepare yourself. And I, I talked to Gerald, yeah, Gerald Salente recently, he said, make yourself as strong as you can, just, uh, just in case. But, you know, if it doesn't happen, perfect. But if it does, then you're ready. Uh, which is the key thing. Well, yeah, you know, the nice thing about a lot of the, the lifestyle changes that you you might logically conclude are the things you need to do going into something like this are, in a lot of cases, the things we should have been doing all along. You know, we should have been embedded in our community. So lots of people have our back. We should um, at least know how to grow 20 or 30% of our family's food. We should be conversant in um, self-defense, including firearms, um, things like that. We should be handy. You know, you should be good at fixing things going into a situation like what's coming. So those are all things that, a, you know, a normal person would consider maybe a good life, but we just drifted away from it because things were so easy for so long. So now, to the extent that those are the things we get back to um, in preparation for what's coming then that makes us a much healthier society. So it could be, this is one of those situations like, uh, you know, you have a minor heart attack, you go to the doctor and they say, well, you need to clean up your act or you'll die. And then you come home and you're serious, <coughs> excuse me, about living a healthier life. Well, at a societal level, we could be heading for a kind of come to Jesus moment like that. And I, I think that it's at least conceivable that that ends up being a big net positive, you know, the crisis and our response to the crisis. And we end up being a healthier society at the end of it. So we can't stop what's coming as individuals, but we can contribute to that positive societal change um, basically with our own actions, our own preparations. So in that sense, we're becoming part of a... Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it an army, but a movement of people that are adopting healthier lives and that are influencing other others to do so. So I think in that sense, you know, there's there's a very good side to this, despite all the gloom and doom. And if we focus on that, then we're then we're making positive change via our own lives. And that's that's a good way to live. That's a positive thing for your attitude and it's good for your neighbors and for society as a whole. Great. So, John, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, so if you had one message to take away, uh, if you wanted our viewers to take one message away from our co this conversation, what would it be? Well, two things. One is the, the message and then the shameless self-promotion part at the very end. But, you know, I, I think there's a um, there are a lot of opportunities in 
you know, normal life. And when there's a crisis, the opportunities are magnified along with the risks. And there are incredible opportunities out there on the, you know, the Substack newsletter I run. Um, it's aimed at actionable intelligence, actionable um, strategies that the people can adopt that will either make them a lot of money or improve their lives in some fundamental way. And uh, so I think that that's, uh, that's the kind of thing that we should be focusing on because there are a ton of opportunities out there. And uh, I am at rubino.substack.com with a lot of things like that. Perfect. I'll put that all in the description below, but thanks again for your time. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.